Well, good evening. It is good to be back. I've been well taken care of today, and I do appreciate that. I appreciate Stan opening up his home to me, and uh, it is uh, certainly a blessing. I wish, I told Herbert, I wish I could have driven to Roxborough and stayed until Thursday night or Friday morning, and uh, my schedule just doesn't allow that this week, so... I will. I think I'm going to drive back tonight. I'm going to know in about 40 minutes whether or not I feel <laughs> like driving back tonight. Uh, when I was a student at Southeastern, I commuted from Lynchburg, and uh, for three of the six semesters that I was there, my schedule, I would leave Lynchburg at 5 a.m., and I had a 7.30 class, and I would go until 9.30 at night, and I would turn right back around and drive to Lynchburg that same day. And I have slept the entire way from Wake Forest, North Carolina, to Lynchburg, Virginia. In fact, one night I got pulled over by a state trooper. He thought I was drinking. I was not. I was tired. And he uh, he pulled me over and st- uh, sat with me for an hour while I took a nap. <laughs> so um, I-, I am a little older and hopefully smarter, wiser. And so if I feel like that, I won't leave tonight. Uh, I told Dad this afternoon, I'm reminded of this every time that I'm here in Roxburgh and here at this church, I said, listen, if you're ever having a bad day, you just need to come to this church. In fact, uh, Dad's on Facebook now, and I said, uh, you know, they do have fan clubs, and maybe you could come down here, and uh, the only problem you would have is who would be president. And um, so uh, I'm glad to have a dad that that I am proud of, and uh, one of the deep abiding pleasures in my life is serving alongside of him to call him not only my dad, my father, but uh, also my pastor, and uh, he is my boss, and uh, he has earned the right to do whatever he wants, and uh, he does not come to any meetings, he has not been to a staff meeting, he has not been to any kind of meeting in years. Um, I tell him what's going on at the church, and he believes me, and... uh, If he finds out something small, like no big deal, something needs to be painted or, you know, we've got a bill for $100, it completely stresses him out. He would be dead and in the grave if he had to deal with all of that stuff every day. It just gets on his brain and he worries about it. So he comes in, he he goes on visits and sees people and preaches on Sunday morning, and then the rest of the week he just does what he wants. I was telling them at dinner, very often he'll come up about 11.45, and uh, there's five or six of us in the office, and he'll say, anybody going to lunch? And, you know, everybody, yes, no, yes, no, well, come on. And you might be right in the middle of an email or a phone call or reading something or had a thought on your mind. And if there is any delay whatsoever, you hear the door slam, dad walk out the door, get in his car, leave. So then you have to drive on your own. You get to wherever you're going. He's already ordered. And when he finishes eating, he gets up and he leaves. And that's it. That's, that's the end of lunch. And knowing that, if you say, no, I don't think I'm going to go today, he gets his feelings hurt. So... We eat partial lunches about twice a week together, but uh, if you ever wanted a fan club, this is fertile ground. Turning your Bibles tonight to the book of Philippians. I think we can all agree on how to say Philippians, and 
Philippians chapter 4. I didn't add Philemon to the Bible today. Some of you uh, said you'd never heard of it or read it, so here we go. Philippians, it's pretty pretty popular. If you need help finding Philippians, uh, always remember General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There you go. If you ever have to take a memory verse test or a sword drill, at least you'll be in the right direction. Philippians chapter 4. Tonight, just for a few minutes, I want to talk to you about the one thing that changes everything. The one thing that changes everything. There there are things that fundamentally change the way that we live. All of you, testimony to the fact that you're here, are law-abiding citizens. There are certain things that you don't do that you might want to do, but you don't do them because you know if you do them, there are ramifications. I'm going to drive home tonight a little differently than I might would if there was no speed limit. But I don't want to get a ticket. I I got a ticket at 6 a.m. pouring down rain in the city of Halifax, if that is a city, and for going 29 miles per hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone. Uh, Tonight, when I drive through Halifax, I will be going 24. (laughs) I don't know if that man is still around, but if he is, I don't want to see him tonight. I will obey the law. It fundamentally changes the way that I drive. Your health. There are certain things... You do and you don't do because you want to be alive. Now, <laughs> admittedly, I've eaten fried chicken twice today, but that's the, the, the first two times in months that I've done that. It probably won't be the last time this week. But, but I wanted so badly to eat a donut this morning, but instead I ate Greek yogurt. Now, a donut tastes better than Greek yogurt, but I did it for my health. It fundamentally changes the reason you do the things that you do. Your relationships, whether they you're here and you're married or with your children or your co-workers, you act in certain ways because you know not to act in those ways fundamentally changes the way those relationships would function. Well, there's something here in Philippians chapter 4. We just finished uh, 30 weeks at Living Word. I was teaching through Philippians. And I, and I read this over a hundred times. In fact, I've memorized literally the book of Philippians. And there was something when I got to the end of the book, right in the middle or really to the beginning of chapter four, something hit me I had never seen in all of my life. In fact, if you read commentaries on this section of scripture, they do not know what to do with this little phrase. They don't know where to apply the, 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 the phrase to, which paragraph here in Philippians chapter 4. It is as if Paul in Philippians 4 just starts blurting out commands, things that we should do. If you read the books of Paul, you'll notice that always front-loaded is theology. He never tells us to do anything until he instructs us who Jesus is and what he's done for us. 
So here in Philippians chapter 4, you, you might imagine that the parchment that is being written on is very small and it's running out of space and he knows he needs to conserve space. So he just starts saying one thing right after the other. You know the feeling, parent, when your kid is walking out the door and they're going somewhere and you say, do you have your shoes? Do you have your money? Do you have enough of this? Have you, have you thought about this? Call me when you get there. And they just go on their way. Well, Paul is very, being very parental here and he just starts shouting out things that they should do. But in the middle of these commands, namely four of them that we'll look tonight, there's a promise and the promise changes everything. The promise that Paul gives changes everything, namely in the way that we understand these four commands. So what I want us to do first is to look at the command and then in light of the command, look at the four or or the one promise, look at the four commands. Um, I, I say this ad nauseum to to my students and to the people at Living Word, so you'll probably only hear it once or twice But words matter. God gave us a book. He didn't give us a CD. He didn't make a drama. He wrote a book. And books have words. And words make sentences. And sentences paragraphs. And paragraphs books. This is the means by which God has chosen to communicate truth. We know nothing of God except He told us, namely through His Word. And so when we read, never let this fall on you that it doesn't, you don't have a sense of weightiness in this. We are opening up the Word of God. The Word of God. And words matter. And words are organized and structured in certain ways. And because they are organized and structured in certain ways, they have meaning. And sometimes the writers in Scripture organize them in in ways that even have more significant meaning because of where they're placed. And we see that tonight. So, to the best of my ability, which is lacking at times, but to the best of my ability, I want us to see a, a promise followed by four commands. I think I said it backwards a minute ago. One promise, four commands. And the four commands are undergirded by this one promise. Well, let's look at Philippians chapter 4, read verses 4 through 6. Here's command number one. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Here's command number two. Let your reasonableness, if you don't have the ESV, Your version has translated this word differently. Nobody can really agree on how to translate this word. I'm going to make a case for humble graciousness tonight. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Here's the promise. The Lord is at hand. Command number three. Do not be anxious about anything. Here's command number four. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. One promise, four commands. The one promise is stuck right in the middle of the four commands. We have two before, two commands before, the promise, 
two commands after. Now, we have to first figure out what near means. Like, what does it mean for the Lord to be at hand? We just finished at Living Word on Wednesday nights, 40 weeks, looking at the parables of Jesus. And one thing that I was struck by was the amount of time through parables that Jesus gave to his second coming. So you could understand the Lord is at hand, meaning that he is soon to return. We have a lot of scriptures that tell us this truth. Philippians chapter 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. James 5. You too, be patient, stand firm. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near. Mark 13. When you see these things happening, you know that He is near right at the door. Or Revelation 1-3. The time is near. It's one of the reasons that we so eagerly pray, pray the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 16-22 when he says, Come, Lord Jesus. So it could be a reference to that. It could mean the Lord is at hand, the Lord is near. It could mean that when you die and you're a believer, that God is there with you. Second Corinthians 5.8 Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body. And where? At home with the Lord. I will never forget, we have a 13-year-old boy die in a, um, uh, a, a four-wheeler accident some years ago in 2005. I remember the call I received that Thursday night, and, and he had an older brother who had been in and out of jail and um, had a very bad drug habit. And when I received the call to come to the Hartman house because one of their children had died, I thought their oldest son had died. I get down there, I go through checkpoint after checkpoint after checkpoint, and I finally park, get out. I knew the state trooper. We're walking down, and I said, how did Dustin die? And he stopped me, and he said, it's not Dustin, it's Bobby. And I went with that mom and dad down to that lifeless body. And in that moment, the only thing that mattered to them was their son was dead. And over those next few days, you can imagine what they were going through. Some of you undoubtedly know. And I went to their house the morning of the funeral. It was on a Monday morning. And uh, I met Keith and Sandy. They own a steakhouse there in Lynchburg. I was at their steakhouse last night. Dad and I had dinner right before I left. And, and we were there, and I thought about this. I knew I would be teaching on this tonight. And I saw Sandy... Last night, and she came over, gave me a hug, and we talked briefly, of course, not about Bobby, just in general about life. But that morning, she was repeating over and over and over and over, I can't do this, I cannot do this, I cannot do this. And finally, I just said, Sandy, what, I mean, I, I understand what you're going through, but what, what is it that you can't do? She said, I cannot. Bobby is afraid to be alone. Now, I'd led Bobby to the Lord a couple of years earlier. I was there when Bobby was baptized. I knew that Bobby was a Christian. I was confident of this. You know, in the middle of crisis, we need people to remind us of what is true. Because we can forget what we know. And in that moment, Sandy had forgotten what she knew to be true. 
And so in that moment, I said, Sandy, do you have a Bible? I said, I need you to get it right now. And me and you and Keith, the dad, needs to go to the kitchen table. And, and we sat down and I read her 2 Corinthians 5.8. And she took her finger and she pointed to that verse and she says, is that true? I said, what's in the Bible? Do you believe the Bible's true? She said, I believe the Bible's true. I said, do you think that God would lie to you? She said, I don't think he would. Do you think the Apostle Paul is just trying to make people feel good? She goes, I don't think so. I said, so if Bobby died and he did, you know that we saw his body. And we know that he was a Christian because just remember, and I recounted the story of Bobby's salvation, and I recounted the time of his baptism, and, and we were confident in his salvation. I said, now, if the Bible's true, and Bobby's died, and we know that he was a believer, where, where is he? And she said, well, the Bible tells me that he's at home with God. I said, he's at home with God. And she stood up and she said, I can do this. If he's with the Lord... I can do this. She believed the Lord was near. A few months ago in Durham, I went to a funeral for a little two-year-old girl. Her name was Elena. And that morning when I walked in and I walked back to see those parents, that mom looked at me and she says, You tell me that Elena's with Jesus? And even though this is a dark path, I'll be able to make it. And not because I wanted to comfort her in the moment, but because I believe to the depths of my heart that it's true. I told her, Elena's with Jesus. She said, if that's true, I can make it. Why? Because they believed to the depths of their soul that the Lord was near. That's, that's what we talked about this morning. The power of the gospel. That's the power of the applied gospel. That's believing to the depth of your heart something to be true. And banking and staking everything to it. That's true. But I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. I think what Paul is talking about here is that the Lord is at hand. Meaning, God is here with you right now. The power of presence. What do we celebrate at Christmas? And you shall, and he shall be Emmanuel, who is what? God with us. The power of presence. It's one of the reasons you'll hear people say every once in a while, we need to be incarnational in our ministry. And what that simply means is we need to go as ambassadors of Jesus to people and we need to be there with them in presence. Some of you wonder what to say when tragedy comes. Initially, don't say anything. You don't need to wax eloquently about theology. Just be there because God will use your presence to manifest His presence in their life. See, the presence of God that Paul recognized was something that would help them in real, objective, concrete ways. So we don't need to think of the Bible simply as a book of ideas or thoughts or abstract truths but rather the Word of God alive. And when we understand that, it transforms our life. The nearness of God, the understanding that God is near, will allow you in times of extreme difficulty to have strong, unwavering faith. Joshua 1.9, he was afraid. But what does God say to him? Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. 
Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We believe that God will not leave us nor forsake us. Hebrews 13. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, now, every time I get up to teach or to preach, this morning, twice, tonight, I have something in the front of my Bible, aptat. And this is what I, this is the exercise I go through. Number one, admit I can do nothing. I just want to say, God, I, I can't do anything in my own strength. I, I am absent of power without you. I can't do anything. So if I can't do anything, P, I pray for God to help me. God, help me. I can't do anything. I need you to help me. And then I trust a promise. So I go in the Word of God and I find a promise. I find a promise and I say, God, I believe that your Word is true. I'm going to trust this. I'm going to bank on it. But then watch. I have to do something. A, I have to act. So, admit I can do nothing. Pray to God to help me. Trust a promise. Then, right now, I'm trusting the promise, namely by the fact that I'm acting on the promise. I'm doing something about it. And then, in just a few minutes, I will go down to my seat and I will quietly but certainly thank God for helping me. See, the Bible is full of promises. We need to trust the promises of God. Do you believe that God is near? Do you believe that God can help you? Do you believe that God is with you and that He will not forsake you? Well, Paul tells the church there at Philippi, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is with you. And so in light of that truth, he commands them to do four things. Let's look at these rather quickly. He says this, the Lord is at hand. Rejoice. Now I want you to think about this. We said it this morning and it's true and it's just something we need to come to grips with. If the Bible will not work in present day life, it's not worth anything. Now, I want you to think about this. I mean, what if I instructed you to turn to your neighbor and stick your bony finger in their face and say, Rejoice! Now, I want you right now to rejoice. Now, Paul is commanding them... To rejoice. Now, does that not seem odd to you? I hope, I mean, in my Bible, I have a little mark and a statement, this seems strange. Like, how do you command someone to rejoice? How do you command an emotion? Well, the first thing that we need to understand, this is not Bobby McFerrin's, don't worry, be happy. Paul's not just telling you to walk around and say, don't worry, be happy. I read a study a few years ago, and there was a psychologist. She'd gone to a lot of schooling, and uh, this should scare you. And she said, um, uh, the way to overcome anxiety in your life is to wake up 30 minutes, worry about everything that you can think to worry about, and then don't worry about it the rest of the day. Now, she got a Ph.D. to be stupid. I mean, that's just... That does not make any sense whatsoever. Some of you are on Twitter. If you're not and you don't know what it is, please don't worry about it. 
But it said this. This is from a very prominent preacher. When you get up in the morning, declare that something good is going to happen. Now, again, that's just dumb. I mean, you can do that if you would like. I mean, get up, look in the mirror, smile as big as you want to smile and say, today something good is going to happen. Now, I told you at the 11 o'clock service, you're not here. I realized while we were singing worship this morning that my 12-week-old cocker sp- or, uh, um, uh, golden retriever has, has chewed the top off of my shoe. Now, at Living Word, we have a glass pulpit. At least we have a, a wooden one here. You can only speculate as to what the top of my shoe looks like. But I can tell you what it looks like. It looks like a little puppy chewed the end of it off. I mean, that's not good. I might declare that good things will happen, but something awful might happen. So to rejoice in the Lord does not mean that you'll never experience any hardship or suffering. It doesn't even mean that when hardship and suffering comes, you don't have sadness or grieve over those that are lost. We, we have just read in Philippians chapter 2 that when Paul, when he heard about Epaphroditus, his good friend, when he said he almost died, that he was, he was full of anxiety, that he worried about him. Paul was not a Stoic. A Stoic believed that the highest degree of emotional uh, stability was to have no emotion whatsoever. No, Paul was a man who wept, who, who, who worried. There, there seems to be for Paul, a, a category of concern, of worry that was, that was okay, that was righteous. He didn't keep people and problems at arm's length in order to maintain a facade of joy. I'll tell you what, I cannot stand. I cannot stand someone who is fake happy. Like a sideways, goofy grin on their face. I don't know what's going on with them. I don't know what they're going to ask me. I just want to avoid them because I know that it's just a facade. Listen, life is full of troubles. Life is full of difficulties. But yet, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Just last week, I was at Roanoke Memorial Hospital with a little boy who was born at 29 weeks, and he's laying there in that little bed, and, and things are relatively touch and go right now. And I didn't, but I want to be able to say to that family, when I, when I press my heart into their heart, I want to be able to look them in the eye and tell them that the joy of the Lord is not something that is waiting for them when their son gets out of the hospital, but the abiding presence of God which produces the joy of the Lord is theirs even in the neonatal unit of Roanoke Memorial Hospital. I didn't have to tell them that because it was there before I got there. Oh, they were full of the joy of the Lord. They, don't, they didn't know how little Sammy was going to do. They still don't know how little Sammy's going to do. And there are hard days, and they cry warm tears over him. But, but there is an abiding presence of God in that room, and the abiding presence of God is producing the joy of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. Listen, if we had to say, I will rejoice when I am free of problems, we would have to wait to heaven in order to rejoice. 
If anybody ever tells you that your life will be free from trouble and trial when you come to know Christ, run from them. They don't know what they're talking about. But there can be joy in the midst of suffering. There can be an abiding sense of the presence of God which produces joy in the middle of such hardship. Rejoice in the Lord always. Tim Keller, he's a pastor of a church in New York City, said this in a book that he wrote, Counterfeit Gods. Rejoicing in the Lord is much deeper than simply being happy about something. Paul directed that we should rejoice in the Lord always, but this can't mean always feel happy, since no one can command someone to always have a particular emotion. To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and its importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. Rejoicing as a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. See, the rejoice in the Lord is to find joy in the Lord. I have a good friend who I'm witnessing to, trying to lead him to the Lord, and, and I am talking with him, and he has good questions, but he gets very frustrated with me when we talk about the problem of evil, when we talk about suffering. And when he, he can't understand in his mind how a Christian can view things in such a way that joy is a capable reality in the midst of such dark suffering. He doesn't believe that it exists. He thinks that it's a show. He thinks that if anyone can have joy in the middle of the world that we live in, that they're actually lying to your face. He said this to me many times. He doesn't understand the abiding presence of the Lord. He does not understand that to turn your heart and your love and your affections toward Him creates in you a joy that cannot be explained. Paul says, the Lord is at hand. Rejoice. Then he says, the Lord is at hand. Be gracious. We don't have time to deal with this tonight. But I want you to think of this as a humble graciousness. In the way that you treat people. See, the way you treat people is fundamentally changed when you understand God is in your presence. God is in your presence. It will change everything about the way you treat other people. There is nothing more antithetical to the gospel than pride. You know, Proverbs says that not only does does God hate the proud, he hates a proud look. Just someone who looks proud, the Lord hates. But if we understand that God is in our presence, it will change the way that you deal with. With other people. The Lord is at hand. Be gracious. Number three. 
The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. Now, this is one area that it is easy to justify sinful behavior. This is where our practical atheism kicks in. When we act as though God does not exist, when we spend all of our time anxious and worrying. We, we just have to, I have to sit down sometimes. I'll never forget when Lily first came home from the hospital. You know, we had those crazy monitors. And let's be honest, well, at least I think now video monitors, whatever. But back then, it, you might as well have been listening to just static. Who knows if she's crying or, or this or that or the other. And, and so I got into the habit of every 30 minutes going and checking on her. Most of the time, much to my wife's, um, uh, she would get very upset with me and uh, she'd say, every time you go in there, because she, if she was sleeping soundly, I would get really close and want to shake her. Okay, she's fine. She's, she's crying, but she's alive. After I'd done this for a few nights, man, my mind is just racing and racing and racing. I mean, I'd read all the studies, and I, you know, I didn't want anything in the crib, and I didn't want this, that, or the other. And um, it was as though the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, you know, if you really want to be diligent about this, you're only checking on her every 30 minutes. Like, that's really inadequate. If you're trying to do a job of making sure that she's breathing which is in my hands, by the way, uh, every 30 minutes seems like a really large gap of time. But, but, but see, I was trying to control something that I had no control over. I was trying to control that which is the job of Almighty God. And so one night, I can remember, I mean, we, we live on a two-story house. There's only, there's only 1,800 square feet in the whole house. I remember taking that baby monitor, cutting it off, unplugging it from the wall, and saying, you know what, we're going to do our best. We're going to feed her when she's hungry. We're going to change her when she's dirty. We're going to clothe her when she's cold. And we're going to pray and ask God to help us to know what we should do, when we should do it. But this worrying about every breath is over. Now, I don't think it meant that I love my daughter any less. You're going to see her on Tuesday and Wednesday night, and you're going to realize that she is well-loved. But anxiety was dominating my life. But when I came to understand that God was in control, that God was near, and that in that respect, He didn't need my help. My worry wasn't keeping my daughter alive. God was. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. Commentator J.B. Lightfoot calls worry or anxiety um, the most useless of all sins. And let's just be honest. It's easy to allow worry and anxiety to dominate our lives. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious. If God's not at hand, if God's not near, you better spend all your time worrying. But if He is at hand, Paul says don't be anxious. 
And then fourth and finally, he says this, the Lord is at hand. Pray. There's a lot of religions in the world, and the difference between Christianity and every other religion is every other religion believes that their leader taught and lived and died. But we believe that he taught, died, and he's alive. That's the difference. We believe that he's alive. We believe that the Godhead is very active when we pray. We believe that the Holy Spirit... You know, you'll hear that 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 uh, he interprets our groanings that are too deep for words, but that's really the Spirit of God. It's groaning in that way, and and he takes our prayers and and he ushers them to the very throne of God. And we we learn in in Scripture that Jesus Himself is also interceding for us. The Lord is at hand. I mean, if what we're doing is just saying words that are just filling up space, they're of no consequence whatsoever. I mean, how foolish can we be? We've got a lady in our church, God bless her. She, uh, she spends lots of money every year to go to a Star Trek convention. If you go to a Star Trek convention, by all means, go. Don't invite me, but attend. And there's a sense, if you walk into her house or... If you see the way she occupies her time and her money, she believes the depths of her soul. I mean, she cried for days when, when, yeah, when he died. (laughs) And she never referred to him by his name, always by his character, as though he exists. If we only thought That God was at hand. Can you imagine how that fundamental truth, if it really got a hold of our heart, how it would change the way that we would pray? I mean, right now, think about someone in your life that you love, 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 love to the depths of your heart, love, and they don't know Jesus. If you believed that you had access to the very throne room of God, would you pray in a different way? Well, you do. We, we, we pray so apologetically sometimes, as though God needs our PR. I, I just became convinced a few years ago when I walk into a hospital room that I'm going to pray for there to be healing. I'm going to pray for other things, but I'm not going to sort of apologetically explain away what happens if it doesn't. I'm just going to pray that God be in that room and that God heal. I said this morning, and I believe that it's true, there's worse things in life than dying. But I will tell you this, I believe that God can heal. And if you, if you haven't kind of come to grips with that, then stop praying for people who are sick. I mean, if he's just some grandfather in the sky who is rather impotent, don't pray to him. But if you believe that God is at hand, can you imagine the way that it would transform the way that we pray? Now, tomorrow night, we're going to look at a parable about prayer. We're going to see the persistence by which we should pray. Not in the vain repetition of the Pharisee, but passionate prayer, believing that God hears us when we pray. Church, do you believe that God is at hand?
then we should pray. We should pray. We come before God in prayer because we believe that He is near. So there, there are some people in your life that are so far from God, you don't think anything in all the world could help them. Well, I'll tell you what could help them, prayer. And I understand what we're saying. But every once in a while, don't you find yourself saying, I just wish there was something I could do, so i just pray. Oh, if we would just default to prayer. If we wouldn't do anything else before we prayed. The Lord is at hand. So we pray. So tonight as we close, four things we see in this text. Four questions really I would ask. Question number one. Is there a lack of joy in your life? And let's be honest. I'll just be really transparent with you. I struggle deeply with discouragement at times in my life. And I have built around me people who I've given permission to walk into my life and look me in the eye and tell me what I know is true. Fill my heart with truth. There's a sense that sometimes in my life there's a lack of joy. And it's because I have forgotten about the presence of God. When I'm reminded of that, the discouragement goes away. Are you harsh and ungracious to people? Husbands, do you find yourself harsh and ungracious to your wife and to your kids? I'll never forget a few years ago, I found myself really hard on Lily. And to be honest with you, if you are around her, she is so full of life. That there are times when you just think, I can't hear another word. But, but it says, children do not provoke your children to anger. That's what it says in Philippians. But, but, but listen to what it says in Colossians. Lest they become discouraged. I thought there's nothing more in all the world that would hurt me. And to think that my words or actions discouraged Lily. Are you harsh and ungracious with people? Have you forgotten that God is near? When those words come out of your mouth or those actions are lived out in your life, have you forgotten that God is near? Or question three, are, are you anxious? Is there worry? Is there anxiety? And you say, well, yeah, but preacher, listen, I understand. But Paul's commanding, don't be anxious about anything. And for me, anxiety flees when I tell it who's in control. And then last, are you praying? And if you're not praying, it's because you have forgotten. No, I know you know, but you've forgotten. The Bible is a book of remembrance. Read the front of this communion table. This do in remembrance of me. It struck me this week, Herbert. I was reading 
um, the account of the upper room, the Last Supper. And to think that Jesus, the night before he was to die, had to tell his disciples, one of the most shocking things in all of Scripture, you're going to have to partake of this meal often in order to remember what is done for you. We have a propensity to forget. Do you pray? Is it just the fleeting times of before dinner, maybe at bedtime? Is there passionate set-aside time to pray? There would be if you believe that God is at hand. So I want us to take a few minutes at the end of the service and I want you, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit of God. But for some of you, you may need to come and pray at this altar. Maybe you need to pray with someone. I, I don't know this church very well or the people of the church, but I cannot imagine that there's anybody in this room tonight that if someone turned to them and said, I need someone to pray with me and for me, that they wouldn't do that. Herbert would be more than willing to pray with you, as would I. But some of you, just in the quietness of your own heart, need to do business with the Lord. And you need to remind yourself of that which you know. The Lord is at hand. You're here tonight and you're lost. You've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I just want to tell you that the one who is Emmanuel, God with us at Christmas, was Jesus on the cross, dying for your sin and resurrected on Sunday. He loves you. He cares for you enough to come and die for you. Spirit of God, we ask for you to rule and reign in this place even right now. May the Spirit of God, may you come and may you impress upon hearts the truth of your word that you are at hand. So come, Lord Jesus. Work on the hearts and minds of people even right now. May we cling tightly to the truth of your word, that you are at hand. We love you, King Jesus. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. May we stand. 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 Amen. May we stand.